Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which is a Penguin Random House publication that came out last summer. Um, I also write for magazines, websites, and a couple of really good humanitarian organizations. Um, I hope everybody's doing well. We had flu here over the last couple of weeks, so I apologize for still sounding a little sniffly, but what the heck, here I am, alive and well. Um, So today I want to talk about something that uh, we're hearing kind of a lot about. If you're like me and you scan headlines and Twitter feeds like crazy, uh, and I know a lot of you do, you'll know that one subject is popping up a lot these days. Zika virus. Even the name sounds terrifying. Zika. It's a disease caused by the bite of specific mosquitoes found primarily in Latin America. Malaria's a mosquito bite disease too, as is dengue fever, West Nile virus, and what I think sounds like it has a really ridiculous name, but is actually apparently very horrid. Chikungunya. So why is Zika getting all the attention? Well, because it has been linked to a severe birth defect uh, called microcephaly. That's when a baby's head is abnormally small. It affects skull development in utero, brain development, and it causes lifelong disability. So malaria is apparently awful, as are the other illnesses caused by mosquitoes, but you know, there are treatments available. There are medications that can be taken to prevent catching malaria, But Zika damages our babies, and that's why it's making headlines. We're still learning a lot about Zika, and I think the Centers for Disease Control are doing a pretty good job getting information out there as they receive it. Uh, But some of the information is confusing, and I think all of it is fairly distressing. So here's a list of facts I want you to know about Zika. Uh, First, it's carried by mosquitoes and uh, people and it can be transmitted through sexual contact with somebody who is already infected with the virus. Second, with malaria, people are encouraged to use bed nets to prevent bites at night, but apparently the mosquitoes that carry Zika bite during the daytime, and using bug repellent with DEET, D-E-E-T, is your best defense. Don't go picking up the natural stuff, the you know Avon product skin so soft that seems to repel regular mosquitoes isn't going to do it. We need DEET, the heavy-duty insecticide that's strong enough to work in a jungle full of bugs. Uh, third, most people who get Zika never know it because the symptoms are pretty mild and they typically start a few days after a bite, so you might not even associate it with you know a mosquito, and they wrap up. You're all over it in you know a week or so. Those who do get symptoms complain of aches and pains, a fever, rash, red eyes. Fourth, we're starting to see cases crop up in the United States as people travel home from Zika hot zones. Um, I think that the most important developments and precautions, you know, as far as we're concerned, are those related to pregnancy and sexual contact. So, um, I want to. I pulled some information off the CDC about what they say, and um, here here's what they write about it. Zika virus can be spread from a pregnant woman to her fetus and has been linked to a serious birth defect of the brain called microcephaly in babies with mothers who had Zika virus while pregnant. 
Other problems have been detected among fetuses and infants infected with Zika virus before birth, such as um, absent or poorly developed brain structures, defects of the eye, hearing defects, and impaired growth. The CDC recommends special precautions for pregnant women. Women who are pregnant should not travel to areas with Zika. If you must travel to one of these areas, talk to your healthcare provider first and strictly follow steps to prevent mosquito bites during your trip. Here's what they say about, um, about you know, w what you should do if you have been exposed, especially if you're considering um, conceiving a baby. So maybe you're not pregnant yet, but you're thinking about it and you either live in a Zika area or you have traveled or had sex, unprotected sex uh, with a man infected with Zika. So they break it down for men and women, those who have symptoms and those who don't. So if you've been exposed via recent travel or sex without a condom with a man infected with Zika, if you have symptoms, Women are, uh, rec it's recommended that women wait at least eight weeks after symptoms start before they try to conceive a baby. And men need to wait at least six months. Uh, if they don't have symptoms, it's recommended still that you wait at least eight weeks after exposure. And for men with no symptoms, they too need to wait at least eight weeks after exposure and they need to talk with their healthcare provider just to make sure that they're free and clear. Now, what about area people who live in areas with Zika? Uh, again, no symptoms. Women need to wait at least eight weeks. Um, you know what, I'm getting that wrong. If they do have symptoms, women, again, need to wait at least eight weeks after symptoms start, and men need to wait at least six months. If there are no symptoms, talk to your healthcare provider, get some advice. And that goes for both men and women. Um, you know, there's just been some really interesting conversations that have generated out of the Zika virus. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting is that several Latin American countries have urged women not to get pregnant at all for up to two years uh, in an attempt to avoid birth defects believed to be caused by Zika. However, no government has announced plans to increase access or remove barriers to contraception. Now, what kind of barriers? Well, let's imagine that you are a woman who lives um, in a Zika hot zone and you are, you know, 20, 50, 100 miles away from the closest healthcare clinic. You don't have um, transportation. You don't have money to pay for contraception. Maybe you're in a relationship where you really don't have the power to decide whether or not you're going to um, use contraception. What are those women supposed to do? Are they, you know, maybe celibacy isn't an option in their relationship. So I think that's something that we really need to talk more about is how exactly do we help women prevent pregnancy if they are at high risk of, of getting Zika and then delivering a baby that is severely damaged. Um, and for those women who are pregnant and have Zika, we're starting to have some really interesting conversations about pregnancy termination, AKA abortion. Even in the pro-life and faith-based communities, people are starting to talk about whether I apologize for that. You just heard my phone ring. I usually remember to shut it down.
Um, but even in the pro-life and faith-based communities, we're starting to talk about whether abortion is not only acceptable, but maybe even necessary in cases where mothers have been infected and her, you know, their fetuses are damaged. No matter what side of the pro-life, pro-choice debate you come down on, I'm really grateful we're having these conversations. I think they're essential. Um, you know, I'll say it right here. As a maternal health advocate, I know that unsafe and illegal illegal abortion is among the leading cause of maternal death from hemorrhage and infection in the world. And when, you know, women are desperate, they'll go to desperate measures. And I think that many women who um, know that they're going to have a severely brain damaged baby, they probably fall in that desperate area. And uh, I think we need to talk more about this. One of my big worries, though, is that not enough women know the facts about Zika. And when I saw a recent press release with results of a public health survey um, about what people do and don't know, I knew that I wanted to get the researchers on the line. Now, don't worry, we're not going to get too technical or data wonky here, but we're also not going to dumb it down because I know my listeners and you guys are smart and you're listening to this podcast because you want more information than you can get elsewhere. So let's pick up the phone and let's let's call Jillian Steelfisher. Hi, Jillian. Hello. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm so glad to be talking with you today. Thanks Good. so much for having me. So, are you in Boston? I am. Yeah. Is it springtime there, or still winter? There are. There are hints that it may be spring, and of course, we are having a much less harsh winter um, than last year, where about this time, I think I was about eight feet under snow. <laughs> um, Screaming bloody remember murder. What green. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't know what that color was anymore. And this year, um, we have had signs of life. So um, it is a happier place in Boston this year, which is nice. Well, my listeners are, are probably getting annoyed with how often I talk about the weather, but it is I'm in Portland where it rains like all the time and so we get to this time of year and every scrap of sunshine and green and flowers we're so grateful for so I'm having a beautiful day beautiful day good yeah Yeah. good so Jillian the reason I wanted to talk to you um, is because I really love to take research that's in the news and make it interesting and easy to understand for regular folks. But I promised listeners that this wouldn't be too researchy and wonky. So let's start off with talking briefly about what you do and how you do it. So I'm, I want to start by reading your bio, and then you can okay. you can break that down. Jillian Steelfisher is a research scientist and deputy director of the Harvard Opinion Research Program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her work involves polls or surveys of the public to better understand how the public responds to public health issues, including infectious disease outbreaks like the current Zika virus. Whew. I know it's a mouthful, especially with all those names, right? You you sound like one of the smart chicks, Jillian. (laughs) Oh, I try to be, you know? (laughs) So um, it's a good place to be. And I have to say, I'm also one of the people who loves their job. Mm-hmm. Um, I always start out by saying that because, you know, I feel like with most people you ask how they're doing and everyone says busy and, you know, their their job is really hard. And 
my job is really hard and there's not a lot of sleep involved, but um, it's terrific. And I feel very privileged to have an opportunity to work on what I do. So I always love to talk about it. Let me tell you. Um, So I do surveys um, or polls of the public. Mm -hmm. Um, I try to understand what they know about public health issues, what they think about public health issues, what they um, want done about public health issues, and with the kind of overriding idea of, as I say, putting the public back in public health. Mm-hmm. Um, we I need to hear that. their voice. I love so that. So that we understand. Yeah, it's, and it's great, and I feel like that's a real privilege because hearing the real experiences of people, um, understanding their perspective, and getting it in a way that can translate to policymakers, to health communicators, to public health officials, I try to distill that all down, which is the beauty of a poll. Kind of get all those ideas, you put into some statistics, and then when you share those numbers, people can understand, well, where is the public on this? And in a case like a Zika virus outbreak, you really want to understand, you know, what people know because they act on what they know. You want to understand what they think, that is sort of not just what they know, but do they think it's a good idea or a bad idea kind of perspective because they might, you know, shape policy that way. They might um, respond to health information that way. You want to know if they trust people. You want to know where they're getting their information so that you can help reach out to them. And the idea is that if you understand where the public is, you understand their view, you can do two things. One, in some cases, you can actually shape public health to better meet their need, which is really important. And the second thing is that you can help get them information so they can make healthier decisions about their family, about themselves. Most of their health decisions will be made far outside a doctor's office. And so thinking about what they do every day, um, how this shapes what they you know, how, they, how what they know shapes what they do is really critical to that. So I study as many public health issues as I can, looking at how the public responds. And I'm particularly interested in how people respond to sort of new and difficult or um, uh, scientific information that might be technical that gets transmitted because I think we can do a better job there. And hopefully my data helps do that. So a, a lot of that's what... basically what I do. A lot of what the public knows about public health issues is funneled through the media, where it gets sensationalized mm-hmm. or it gets um, dumbed down to, you know, a level that, you know, most people could understand more than I think sometimes the media gives them credit for. Um, mm. So right now it appears like the media is representing Zika as the next big horror. You know, you see pictures on you know, wherever you're getting your news of, um, you know, babies that have microcephaly or, you know, crying mothers and babies. Do you agree that Zika should be portrayed that way? Or that it is being portrayed that way? Yeah, I guess it's an interesting question. And um, I think it's important to think comparatively in some ways, which is, you know, how does this, how does the portrayal of this uh, outbreak compare to other outbreaks. Um, and I would say for Zika virus outbreak, it's not, it hasn't been as sensationalized as, as some other outbreaks. And I think particularly of Ebola, for example, mm-hmm. um, I think the natural, there, there's some kind of logical science around that in the, in that, you know, this is not uh, easily transmitted in the same way from adult to adult. You don't have like graphic images of people dying a gruesome death. I mean, Ebola, there's so many, horrific visuals that went along with it. Um, 
um, and so much sort of mass spread suffering. um, And people's hearts were really tuned to that, but it also tapped into some real fears that we have. Um, It was a really gruesome way to die. And we know from, you know, anecdote as well as scientific research around how people respond to threat is that things that are scary are perceived, you know, people, people don't understand like the, the likelihood of something happening. They're just scared of it. And so mm-hmm. they react that way. And I feel mm-hmm. like Ebola got caught up in that. It also got caught up in a political cycle. You know, the outbreak happened to occur right as we were going into elections. Mm-hmm. There was what I was calling kind of the, the echo chamber. Yeah. Um, and the number of stories really dried off after the political cycle. So I feel like it got, Zika, I mean, sorry, Ebola got, got trapped in that. Yeah. Zika has a little bit of advantage in that, um, uh, you know, at least from the mainland U.S., it's it's sort of happening slowly. Um, uh, there isn't sort of, you know, people are going to get off this plane and infect your children kind of a fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at the same time, you know, trying to translate something that is slow and is, you know, not well known, like we don't actually have the science down for the virus the same way do, we do for Ebola. Right. Maybe so what we should do. I think do, there's still those graphic images. Yeah. And so forth. Yeah. So maybe what we should do is talk for, you know, there might be one or two listeners out there who haven't heard what Zika is yet. Do you want to talk about what it is real quickly? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a Zika virus expert, but I think sort of as basic grounding, um, it's a virus that's primarily transmitted by mosquitoes and mm-hmm. is also transmitted um, by uh, mother to baby during pregnancy. And also, so also sexually transmitted, correct? And also sexually transmitted and by blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, the, the, the actual Zika virus disease, and again, you know, people should go to main websites or other sources for the technical details. I am not an expert, but I can summarize. We'll, so we'll push them CDC towards the CDC. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But if I summarize it in my own lay summary, I would say it's a virus that in the immediate symptoms are relatively mild. Um, you have a rash, you may have a fever, um, you can get conjunctivitis, which is uh, redness in the eyes. Um, but most people sort of clear the infection pretty quickly. What's worrisome about Zika virus is actually things that are associated with it, but it, we don't understand how it's caused or if it's caused. The big one is that um, women who are pregnant, who are infected with Zika virus, um, have a likelihood of which we don't know exactly, but there's an association between the infection and microcephaly. Mm-hmm. So microcephaly is a big word, and what it means is it's basically a birth defect in the baby. Um, it affects the brain, where the head is of unusually small size, and it may have brain um, developmental uh, uh, related developmental problems, right. neurological problems. And there's some new evidence that it may be associated with other problems, including um, uh, other neurological issues, some eye development issues, like sort of a host of things around pregnancy, yeah. um, as well as possibly miscarriage. The, the science isn't great, but there's an association that's strong enough for us to be worried. Right. Um, there is also an infection um, or a, a reaction to the infection that causes something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which where the person becomes paralyzed. That can happen in adults and children, and it's not just this virus. It's a very rare outcome. The news hasn't really talked as much about that, and I don't think that's as relevant for our audience. I think we'll focus really on the risk of microcephaly and other related conditions for um, for pregnancies. Yeah. So tell me about the poll you created and why you created it. 
Good. That's it. I think it's a good transition to this, which is, okay, so now we have this illness or this virus and a related illness. And what we want to understand is, okay, well, this is a bad outcome for a pregnancy for sure. Um, a lot of um, the children who are born with microcephaly face a lot of developmental challenges. Um, and it's um, heartbreaking for families um, and so obviously we want to try to prevent that and to have healthy pregnancies wherever we can. Um, so the, cap, the challenge, of course, is that that means we need to give, you know, people aren't going to stay in a bubble the whole time they're pregnant. Like they have to be given information about where the risks really are. They have to understand what they can do to protect themselves. And we also want to make sure that it's not just women by themselves, but it's their partners too. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry. And families and communities as well. <clears throat> Absolutely. <clears throat> Sorry. No problem. So, um, so we want to make sure that, you know, everyone who's sort of around a pregnancy, not just the mother, um, has information about how to protect that baby. Um, so um, what we want to understand is, okay, well, do women have the, do women and their partners and their families, do they have the right information? Are they taking the steps they need to? Are they, you know, are they well informed? So what we want to do is we want to do a poll which is, again, a way of kind of serving the public, finding out what they think. And then we want to focus in on um, both the general public and this particular group of people. So we looked at some um, people who live in a household with someone who's pregnant and people who live in a household with someone who's considering getting pregnant. Because, mm. um, of course, we're doing this before the mosquitoes really hit in much of the United States, before it may seem so relevant for people. So we want to think about who's going to need this information mm -hmm. going forward. What did you find out? We found out some really important things, of course. Um, uh, otherwise, you probably wouldn't have invited me. <laughs> so um, hopefully, um, you know, so we found out there are, there are what I think is sort of two kinds of misinformation, right? So it's misinformation that makes you not do the things you need to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. And then there's misinformation that leads you to do things you don't need to do. So for women... Uh, for people in households with women who are pregnant and their families and people who are considering getting pregnant, um, we found out that there are some important gaps in information that might prevent them from doing things they need to do to protect themselves and their pregnancies. Um, so, for example, we just talked about this association between Zika virus and microcephaly. Mm -hmm. Now, hopefully, 100% of your audience understands that. But what we found is that almost a quarter of people in this group in our poll did not know about it. They just so didn't know about it. they don't even it. know of this risk, exactly. They didn't know the association between Zika virus and microcephaly. Were these that, people that aware of what Zika virus was? Had they heard about it? So we accounted for that. Um, we asked them whether or not they were following it or they knew anything about it. And, and so we accounted for that. So there are some uh. people who knew about the association. There are some people who didn't know anything about Zika. Um, so in, in the sum total in the end, what we know is that there are just about a quarter of this kind of high-risk group, so to say, um, that doesn't know about the association. Got so the it. first thing is they say, okay, well, they need to know, right? So hopefully all your listeners, again, we've bumped that up to 100%. <laughs> um, then they didn't know about um, ways that they could get um, Zika virus. And one of the ways that you mentioned earlier on was sexual transmission. Mm -hmm. And uh, about four in 10 didn't realize the virus could be sexually transmitted. And... Um, to me, that's worrisome because, you know, if something's sexually transmitted, there are a couple of ways to prevent it, right? There's not having sex 
and is using barrier methods of protection mm-hmm. and, um, for for sexual intercourse. And you know, I think once people are pregnant, they may not really be thinking about protection in that way anymore. Right. So this right. is like a little bit of a discontent, right? Like you're pregnant, you're not trying not to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, condoms are kind of a, a, a different thing to be putting in the mix for a lot of people. Yeah, especially if um, they've been in a long-term monogamous relationship, you know, they're not worried about HIV anymore, they're not worried about gonorrhea or syphilis anymore, but this is really different. It's different than those STDs because, you know, their partner could just get it from getting a mosquito bite and not even being aware that he is carrying it. I mean, a lot some people who get Zika don't even know they have it. Um, yeah, that it's, you know, we, there's no technical numbers on this, but most people who get Zika virus, again, as best I can tell from the science they have is they don't actually show any symptoms. Yeah, they're fine. So they have no way of knowing the infection. They look fine. You know, you can't even check. So then this idea that, like, you have to reintroduce condoms into a relationship, it's just, it's complicated. Yeah. So reaching this kind of core group of people, you want to make sure, like, you know, this is almost half of people, like four in ten. It's not a trivial number. So you really want to make sure people know that sexual transmission is out there. So, um, And the other thing is, yeah. Can I clarify that we're talking about kind of a select population of partners, though? I mean, you don't, we don't have Zika here in the United States yet. We're thinking it's coming this summer. But right now we're mostly concerned about people that have um, traveled to the, what they're calling the hot zone territories, like Haiti and Brazil and parts of Latin America, right? Right. So the idea with a poll is that, and what I think about polling is that you try to get ahead of the curve, right? So if I just wanted to talk to everyone who has a partner kind of traveling to those places and coming back, there would it could be short-sighted. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we think this is going to go away and it will never affect the U.S. mainland, then, you know, that's a different conversation. Right. Um, but if there's a, you know, a, at least a reasonable risk that it will that it will be inside the United States. You want to say like, okay, well, what do I know about that now so I can get a jump started? I mean, at least we were talking about weather at the beginning. It's actually very relevant because yeah. tragically there are not many mosquitoes by me, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not facing like the summer heat and mosquito season. I will be, um, but I'm not now. Mm-hmm. So with the you know, but as it, you know, as it heats up, and again, I don't, I'm not trying to say that there will be Zika virus in Boston. I'm just using it as a funny example, which is to say, you know, we have a little bit of a jump start, and with public health being relevant to prevention, we don't always have this window of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And to me, it feels like a really good chance to say, like, okay, well, I can't just interview just those people. Let's just find out, like, if I think about it as like rings of my of the people we need to reach, right? Mm-hmm. There's like the women who are about to have sex with someone who has Zika virus, right? I can't find out who they are. So like now I got to find out like women who are likely to be at that group. That would be so a funny poll, poll question though. <laughs> it would be awkward, wouldn't it? It'd be so, funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we might get a lot of people hanging up. <laughs> so, are you planning on having sex with somebody who's been bitten by a mosquito with Zika? Yes or no? Yeah, that would be awkward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. awkward. No, no, it's, it's good. We can work on this. Sure. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so this is an idea that we kind of get a vision of that of that group as best we can, so that we have some 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 idea ahead of time. We're not kind of always fighting the battle from the back end, which is difficult and often the the case that we are in in public health. What did you find out about um, people's perception about vaccine? Oh, so I was just about to say. I hope we come to that because um, 
you know, so I, I do actually a, um, a lot of research to understand people's perceptions of vaccine, mm-hmm. um, not just in this case of Zika virus, but in the case of um, childhood immunization, um, uh, vaccines during emergencies like, you know, pandemic flus. And vaccines really interest me in terms of the public's <clears throat> understanding. So this, I really want to find out, like, do people think there's a vaccine? Do they not? Because it shapes what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, with the idea being that if you think there's a vaccine, you may or may not be as motivated to take other kinds of precautions. You may right. rely on it, you know. And in this case, we see that um, almost 20% of this population think there's a vaccine. Hmm. So if they do, maybe they won't be taking those other precautionary measures. Or they sort of just downplay that kind of overall risk in the sense of like it's something that's taken care of. Mm-hmm. So you know, you want to make clear like there's no vaccine right now, and you know, there's also no science, cure. As I understand it. It's, no, you know. Um, so, I mean, we don't know how often someone gets infected. It's passed. It's not like a guarantee. If you get bit by a mosquito that has it, your child will have mycocephaly. Right. There's a lot of other nuance there that needs to be sorted out. But as it's being sorted out, and there's some things you can do, you want to be able to do that for your pregnancy. Sure. You know, you want to know to stay, you know, stay away from mosquitoes, to use repellents, you know, get screens in your windows, you know, dump out water standing water, doing all the things that can protect the environment, having your family members do that, mm-hmm. making sure there's like, you know, opportunities. Like if you're going to go out with them, maybe someone else brings, you know, some long sleeve clothing. Maybe there's, you know, netting, whatever, whatever people need to do to kind of, you know, kind of cocoon around that pregnancy is important. And then, of course, the sexual transmission piece is a critical piece. What about Zika's impact on future pregnancies? What if- so that is an important issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... We've just been talking about how the poll focused in part on this kind of key group that we could we could kind of get at, right? These are people who are in families um, with someone who's pregnant or considering pregnant. Now, we also did a poll of like the rest of the public and mm-hmm. the public more broadly. And there are some findings there that are really important. Um, we talked about, you know, findings that might make people not take action that they need to take. Mm-hmm. And then they might have things that are kind of they're taking they don't they don't need to worry about. So here's a place where we have some reassurance for the public in a way, um, which is that we found that um, about four in 10, so like 40%, I don't know how to, a good fraction, I don't know, a good way to explain that, but um, of the general public thinks that a woman who isn't pregnant and gets infected, that it can affect future pregnancies. And so some of the scenarios that we might have seen kind of in social media or others is that, you know, um, a young woman gets um, Zika virus and then, you know, years later she's trying to conceive and she's worried about the risk or mm-hmm. children who are traveling with their parents to these places or, you know, you're thinking about getting pregnant. You just need to make sure that you don't, um, you know, you have to like plan for a, a lot, uh, you know, a lot later or differently or, you know, you can't do anything. How should I say it? If you get infected now, like hope is lost. You know? Right, right. Like, this will affect you forever. But it's and not true. Actually, well, there's no evidence, basically, that once the infection has cleared your blood, right? So you don't, you actually clear the infection from your blood, but there's no risk to future pregnancies. It's like you get sick, mm-hmm. then after you, um, after you get sick, like the virus might still be in your blood for a little while, mm-hmm. and then it will eventually clear out. And that, there's no risk to pregnancies. It's not something like stays in you permanently. Um, it doesn't affect your body permanently. What you want to think about is the time when the virus is in your blood. Yeah. If it's not in your blood, you're not at risk. Got it. 
And again, that's that's a quick summary. There's there's no evidence of it. So I'm sure they'll do more research about it. But this is, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, oh my gosh, I can't go on that trip. I can't talk to that person. I can't, you know, I can't do these things because I'm worried that, you know, this is going to affect my chances for having a healthy pregnancy later. And that you can rest assured. So, but, you know, based but on... There's, can, I, can I say... Yeah, yeah. Can I say one caveat? That's really important. Yeah. Now, for most people, I can kind of leave it at there and, you know, go on. But I, I feel like it's, you know, we're now talking to, in this podcast, to women who are pregnant, women who are considering getting pregnant. Um, and it's really important to say there's an important caveat to this. Now, remember I said, you know, there's no evidence that if the virus isn't in your blood, it can affect the pregnancy. Right. So it's this sort of weird window, okay? So let's say there's a woman who is not pregnant, gets infected with Zika virus, and then like immediately gets pregnant. Mm-hmm. Now scientists actually don't know. Yeah. So infected women, there's like this little bit of a window where we don't really know what goes on. Like how long is the virus exactly in your individual blood? Like it's mm-hmm. supposed to clear roughly in a week after you have symptoms and they clear up. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, there's this awkward window. We don't really know. Any given woman might be a little bit different. So there was recent, you know, formal guidance from the CDC that came out last week that said women should um, delay conceiving for two months after their last known exposure to Zika virus. Just as so, a safe window. Exactly. So it's a little bit, it sounds like it's a little bit of a, it could be interpreted, I guess, as a, a little bit of a contradiction. Like it won't affect future pregnancies, but I should wait. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of the science behind it. And so maybe that will help people understand where this guidance is coming from. Got it. But the idea being that, you know, if it's in your blood, you're, um, we don't really know what happens and we've got to be watchful of that. Um, but once it's cleared from your blood, you're, the future pregnancies are not infected. Um, and one other thing to mention that's kind of coming down the pike is there may be differences of time windows for how long it's circulating in blood and in semen. Mm-hmm. So the guidance for men and women is kind of different around this. So it's worth checking out if people are considering um, getting pregnant and may either be directly exposed or be exposed to their partner um, to Zika virus. Do we know how long, do, is the CDC making any any recommendations on how long um, people should practice protected sex after a partner has had it? Do you know what I mean? Like, how long should the guy wear the condom? He got it. He knows he had it. Does he need to wear the condom for, you know, the rest of the pregnancy or two months? So you should look at the, well, I think the trick is that if he's at risk of repeat exposure, it's the whole pregnancy. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? Like, so if he had it and he's anywhere near another mosquito that could have it, then, you know. Okay. It's the whole pregnancy. Got um, it. But I think that the waiting for conception is like six months, or I think that's right. You have to check the website. But, you know, I think the general principle is they're trying to say, like, if your partner is at risk, just use use protection, use a condom during pregnancy, or don't have sex. Okay. You know, it's... So, huh. that's my understanding, anyway. So, <clears throat> I like to play a game of flip the stats, where... Mm-hmm. I like to take research statistics that might say something like, you know, you'll read something like twice as many women in this category are at risk for this and that. But then when you really look at the numbers and you break them down, you realize that 99.9% of women are not at risk. So how do we do that with Zika? Mm-hmm. 
well, I can do it with my pole. Got it. That because works. It's an important question. <laughs> it's an important question that I try to ask myself a lot because when you report a story, you can present it as a glass half full or glass half empty story. Exactly. Right. What I do is try to say like, okay, well, do people have the right information? And you can either be horrified that a fraction has the mis- you know some misinformation or glad that it's only that percentage. Right. And so I think it's important to add some perspective here, which is that, you know, nowhere was I talking about a majority of people having drastically wrong information. Okay. Right. There's the things that I've talked about here are, you know, I don't want to downplay their importance because in this population, I want it to be 100% of everyone not right. that information. Now that your audience is 100%, I want everyone to have a chance to get to that, right? Mm-hmm. So I still think that's the right turn or right perspective on the data. But I think it's also important to be able to turn it and say like, okay, well, let's not just get like totally worked up in the ways that are, un- that are un- unhealthy or sort of unproductive for making people kind of tune out the information and say like, okay, well, there are some things that people are generally getting right. Right? Like, so most people really knew this is an infection or this is an infection by mosquitoes. So, you know, that's, you know, almost 90% of people. Awesome. People understood, you know, for the most part, or, you know, almost three quarters that it was um, passed from mother to baby during pregnancy. Um, so there's some important information that is known. Um, and we don't want to, you know, you don't want to downplay that. One of the things that I talk about um, the broader public, they think the virus can be caught from, uh, or about a third of people, about 31%, said that they think the virus can be caught um, from being coughed on or sneezed on by someone who's infected. Hmm. No, you it's can't. not true. Yeah, that's not true. You cannot. No, yeah. no. Um, I mean, you understand why people say that, right? Sure. Like there's lots of viruses that can be. It just doesn't have to be true for Zika virus. Right. So we can understand the context. And it's like, you know, it's a third of people. But actually, um, it's only a third of people. Mm-hmm. So it's an important thing to clarify because you worry that people who think that will be taking like really excessive you know, measures to protect themselves. So they might be worried about taking a trip or doing something where they're, um, you know, they're sort of uh, where they think they're going to be exposed. Or at worst case, we've heard of people, you know, just it sort of augments discrimination because people avoid other people they think might have been in the place, yeah. you know, by sort of stereotype. And you, we saw that in SARS, for example. Right. And um, with Ebola. Which is another disease. Yeah. Uh, yes, Ebola, absolutely. Um, but maybe in the comparison to Ebola here, you know, in Ebola, actually, 85% of people thought that it was very somewhat likely that Ebola was transmitted by coughing and sneezing. Mm-hmm. And that was not true also. Right. And in that case, you know, that led to like, much more widespread panic about, about I don't want to say panic, it's never a good word, but more, much more widespread concern about the contagiousness of it and what could happen. And it seemed, you know, in a couple of cases, people couldn't understand how it was spread. And so it felt very close. The risk felt very close. Um, in this case, we have a much smaller fraction with that misinformation. So in some ways, like kudos for public health communications that, um, you know, this part of it has actually gone down. Doesn't mean we don't need everyone to understand. We do. Mm-hmm. We always got to get to 100%, but let's kind of measure our, our success there as well so we don't just have a down story. Great. I appreciate I appreciate that perspective a lot. I am a glass half full kind of gal. So, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Jillian, what else do you want women to know about Zika? What else do I want women to know about Zika? That is a very good question. Um so let's see what we've covered. Okay, so I do want them to know the basic facts about Zika virus. Mm-hmm. I want them to know how to protect themselves and their pregnancies. I want them to be able to um, 
you know, make sure that it's not just them that knows. I want them to make sure their partners and families know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want women to have a way to kind of engage them in that conversation um, because it seems that often, you know, the, the women, we're the final ones that actually have the baby. Yeah. And so kind of whether or not the child gets microcephaly seems to be like, oh, and whether or not the woman, like, she got herself bitten by a mosquito. She got herself right? bitten. Like, just, <laughs> she ran around naked right? with like wet a, skin. <laughs> just trying to find this. And so, you know, tr- we need to kind of un- undo some kind of, you know, delayer that and kind of understand this is more of a, um, this is a whole family issue. This is a community issue. Um, you know, there are lots of policy, you know, everything from sort of mosquito control or what we call vector control, which is really, you know, spraying for mosquitoes, for example. That's not something that individual women can do, but, you know, they may think about that, you know, think about their role in that, think about there's lots of things we can do as a community. I'm not advocating necessarily for that strategy. I'm just saying, like, there are things that we can do as a community, things people can do as family, um, and understanding all of that, um, that it's not just them sort of standing there alone in this, Um, because that's a hard place to be, and pregnancy is a stressful time. Mm-hmm. For feeling like everything you do, you know, every bite of food you put in your mouth is affecting that. Every air, you know, piece of, a little bit of oxygen you breathe or whatever you're breathing in with it is affecting this, you yeah. know, this developing human. It's, it's a, a lot of pressure. Yeah. So. It's a fragile and vulnerable time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd like to ask you one more question that I like to ask sure. everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? And I... I I don't know if you have children or not, but everybody either is a mother, has a mother, or knows a mother. Well, it's an interesting question, um, and I'll say it most relevant for my research um, because that's um, something that um, I'm so passionate about. And uh, for me, you know, as I said in the beginning, you know, I study how people make decisions around health um, and how they protect themselves, how they protect their families, and for me. The role of the mother is very important because she is often the, what we call, you know, people throughout the term like gatekeeper of information. She's the person who makes doctor's appointments. She's the person who, you know, is with the kids when they're sick. Um, She's the person who advocates for her partner to go see a doctor or, you know, kind of is the doctor at home. Um, And for me, understanding that perspective is really important. Um, And you said, you know, every woman, other you know, what do you say? Is, is a mother, knows, knows a mother, or has a mother? Or has a mother, okay. Um, and assumably if you have one, you also know one. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, there's some, there's some overlap there. But in, um, you know, so if we understand that, that means that, you know, having everyone kind of understand that connectedness or, or thinking about how we can better understand their perspective because they're such a critical piece and how people are ending up making decisions mm-hmm. um, is is really important. Um, so to me, I find that more and more interesting, um, and I try to look at it. I work on lots of different um, health issues, as I said. You know, I'm not an expert in any one of the issues, but I try to be mindful of what we can learn about people's perspectives. Um, so for me, you know, that's important. That's great. Yeah. Well, Jillian, we've covered a lot of territory here. That was a really info-packed half an hour. I appreciate that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And I'm going to um, direct people to the CDC to get more information. Um, and, and the state and local public health offices, too. 
Sorry, yes, just absolutely. Plug for the state and local as well. Well, I was about to ask you that. Who else should we plug? But that's great. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you very much. Hey, it's a pleasure to have been here. Thanks so much. And thanks to all the listeners out there. I, I hope this is helpful for you. I, I'm sure it's going to be. Great. Okay, bye-bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Today's guest was Jillian Steelfisher. You can learn more about her work by going to the Harvard School of Public Health website. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting podcast is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can pick up my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, everywhere books are sold. You can learn more about me and my work at genefaulkner.com. Email me at gene at genefaulkner and send me those questions and comments. Thanks, everybody, for listening and sharing the podcast and subscribing and joining me uh, for some truly important conversations. See y'all next week. Bye.